Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me as always is Aaron Miller. This week we're going to be uh, setting aside two of our regular features, our question of the week and our weekly pick that happens at the end of each episode uh, because we're going to be spending most of the episode today talking about Apple's earnings. Uh, we'll return to our usual format next week. We will be doing our little news roundup at the beginning still. We've got a couple of things that we want to talk about there quickly, but we will be spending the bulk of the time reviewing Apple's earnings, which were announced on Tuesday afternoon, uh, and just running through some of the product lines and some of the other elements and, and themes that came out in those earnings. Uh, just to kick off, though, we're going to do our quick news roundup, and, and we had three items we wanted to cover there. Um, we we're recording this on Wednesday, and, and earlier today, uh, the FCC announced that it was going to be intervening in the cable set-top box market. Um, and essentially, they're saying that the current way in which uh, there's supposed to be some openness in this market. It doesn't really work very well, um, which is the cable card system where um, third-party manufacturers can make boxes um, that then get a card slotted into them and can essentially be authenticated to be a, a recipient of content from cable head ends. Um, that, that doesn't work very well and, and it's been frustrating to users and to uh, would-be competitors to the cable companies. Um, and uh, so the FCC is announcing that they're, they're planning to open that up. There, there are relatively few details around that, all of that so far. Um, it's just preliminary at this point. It's not a final uh, announcement. And the cable industry has already said that it's planning to fight it. So um, we're pretty early days in all of this. But what did you make of all this, Aaron? Well, it'll be a long, slow fight. That's how pr proposed rules work for just about every government agency. Um, just like the net neutrality rules were a long, slow fight. And, right. but, I, but I do think it's a sign of uh, hope along those lines. I, I mean, the one thing we know is that the current FCC chairman is somebody who's kind of spoiling for these fights. He seems to enjoy them, which is funny because when he first took the position, there were a lot of people concerned about his lobbying background working right. against consumers. And the truth is, in the role, he's been pretty pro-consumer. Um, mm -hmm. The other risk that's always at stake with this is that he can be out-legislated. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. like the cable companies are going to be lobbying Congress harder than they are the FCC, right. and they'll try to legislate their way around the FCC's power here. And yeah. so, um, and I think you're probably going to see some interesting, um, some interesting arguments made in the public space as far as that goes. Like, for example, a member of the, and I can't remember who it was, but a member of the Congressional Black Caucus came out against the FCC rules, which seems hardly at all aligned with the issues that the Black Caucus should be concerned about, right? But um, the, the the point is that there will be interesting bedfellows, interesting people coming out of the woodwork to make statements about this. I think you'll probably see some astroturfing as well. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, we're in for kind of, like I said, a long, slow fight. But hopefully consumers win. Mm -hmm. I, you know, this has interesting implications, obviously, for the Apple TV, especially with the frustration that Apple has had about doing its own TV product. You know, I don't know, the Apple TV mm -hmm. could essentially be your cable box. Right. And that's the big question that I have is how is this implemented? Because if it's just a sort of revised attempt at the same sort of cable card system where you're still trying to speak the same language essentially and work in essentially the same way as the cable set-top boxes do, then who's going to build those boxes? You know, that's not going to be a very attractive space for most companies to get into. Most of the companies that could build those boxes are already building boxes for the cable companies. Uh, and so it's not that attractive. But if it's more open than that, if it's basically saying you need to send your streams and 
such a way that third-party boxes can pick them up and display them to consumers, and you just need to have some kind of way to authenticate that, then it's much more open, and there's a potential for you know, Apple, Roku, Amazon, uh, Microsoft with the Xbox, Sony with PlayStation, um, to start receiving those streams and displaying them with their own UIs. And that, that suddenly gets a lot more interesting. So if it goes that way, then I think it's much more... Uh, impactful than if it's just kind of a revised sort of attempt at the same sort of cable card approach. Um, you know, I, I've seen some people sort of drawing a parallel with the, the landmark decision, called, which is known as Cartophone, uh, which was the decision that uh, basically said AT&T couldn't have a monopoly on the phones that were attached to phone lines provided by AT&T. Uh, and back in the day, that, that stimulated a huge amount of innovation around you know, landline telephones seems a crazy space to be talking about innovation in now um, because they've been largely unchanged since then, it seems, in some ways. But, um, you know, that really was a huge decision. I've seen some people referring to this as sort of equivalent to that. That may be overblown for now. I think we need to know a lot more about exactly how this goes. But I, it's certainly very interesting and worth watching quite closely. I am fascinated that the cable companies came out to, I mean, their two biggest arguments thus far that have been sort of publicly made arguments are that. One, it has a negative effect on their advertising revenue because through their cable boxes, they push certain shows in exchange mm -hmm. for, you know, payments by the mm -hmm. show producers. And then the other is that there were complaints that these third party cable box manufacturers would get access to or even control over customer data that made the cable companies uncomfortable because of course right now they have the exclusive access to that data right mm -hmm. and so it's funny because those are not arguments that are going to be persuasive to the public right, right. I mean, absolutely yeah, basically it, about we're going to make less money off you by charging you too much for these boxes and we're going to know less about you in the process right yeah <laughs> that's that's yeah. not exactly going to win hearts and minds right no exactly yeah Interesting. Okay, well, the second topic we wanted to cover was over the past week or so, um, some data has come out of the Oracle Google court case about Google's revenue on the one hand from Android, which I think was pegged at $31 billion. Um, the other interesting data point that came out was that Google had uh, paid Apple a billion dollars uh, to have Google be the default search engine in Safari um, in 2014. Uh, and so interesting numbers we haven't seen before. Google fought quite hard to have both those numbers suppressed and, and ultimately failed. I think Bloomberg reported on them um, before the transcripts mysteriously disappeared from the court website. Um, but some interesting sort of numbers there. Both of them need to be taken, I think, with a pinch of salt. Um, the, the billion dollar number, it's not clear whether that's the entire payment or whether that's just sort of the, the exclusivity payment and then there are payments on top of that on a sort of commission basis for individual searches. Uh, the $31 billion number, it's really unclear what that refers to because, of course, Google doesn't uh, charge for licensing Android as such. So is it you know revenue from Google advertising on Android phones? And if so, over what period uh, and how is that calculated? And so it's really not clear where that number comes from either. But because these are the first numbers we've had on either of these things, they're still quite sort of juicy and interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, the truth is Android, I think, and a lot of analysts have said something to this effect, but Android is always kind of a defensive mood by Google anyway. I mean, right. so that it wouldn't get locked out of mobile. if mm -hmm. And because, I mean, if the iPhone, for example, had a monopoly on mobile or, you know, if it was Microsoft and Apple that were fighting together over mobile and Google was sort of left out, they would they would be over a barrel when it came time to negotiate default search engines. Right. And so... Android clearly has been a defensive move. I think Google can be happy that they're making any money on it. I think the truth is that 
um, for Google, the, the, this is just an indicator that they have not figured out how to make money off of mobile the way a whole bunch of other companies have. You know, mm -hmm. in Facebook's earnings today, it's really clear that Facebook has figured out mobile. Um, yes. And especially advertising on mobile, which is, I think, the impressive yeah. part. I, in fact, I would say that they're better at it than Google right now. Obviously, they have different products, but they, it, you know, Google's—they made thirty-one billion dollars off of Android. Probably advertising through Android is is what we would suspect. And right. I think the question is, you know, does that give us confidence in Google's approach to mobile generally? I don't think so. Right. No, it doesn't. It's still, they're struggling to have the same kind of impact in mobile that they had on, on the desktop with search in particular and then display as a secondary revenue source. Um, yeah, I, I did some analysis for, for TechPinion subscribers on Monday of, um, you know, that billion dollars and what it might mean and, and so on. And it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to think about what it represents and, and, you know, what it means in terms of whether Apple might ever move away from Google as the default search engine as well. Um, so the third news item we wanted to talk about was carrier earnings, and, and this partly because it's something I follow very closely, um, both out of interest and, and for some of my clients. But um, we've now had all the major US carriers except for T-Mobile report earnings, and T-Mobile has reported its subscriber numbers on a preliminary basis, just hasn't released its final numbers uh, with revenues and so on as well. Um, one of the really interesting things that's come out of it, and it's something that I, I plan to write about still over the next little while, is that it's becoming clearer and clearer that there is no single answer to the question of what these new uh, installment plans for devices do to upgrade rates. Um, there have been people arguing that they will uh, shorten upgrade cycles, that people will upgrade more frequently because some of these plans support that. There have people, been people arguing that they'll, they'll actually lengthen uh, upgrade cycles. And what's becoming clearer and clearer from these carrier results is that actually it just depends on the carrier. Um, so at AT&T and Verizon, where they've really kind of backed off on pushing people to upgrade uh, and where their plans don't really incentivize early upgrades, we've seen upgrades fall pretty significantly and their sales of smartphones have fallen quite a bit as well over the past year. Um, at T-Mobile, on the other hand, where they've you know a lot of emphasis on this jump program that allows you to upgrade very frequently, um, their upgrade rate has actually risen. And so T-Mobile now sells almost as many smartphones in a quarter as AT&T does, even though it's a far smaller carrier. Um, and that's because of this kind of divergence in the way that they're approaching upgrades. And th this is important for, and we'll talk about this obviously in a minute when we get onto Apple earnings, but it's important for smartphone vendors that want to sell smartphones in the US because these bigger carriers are de-emphasizing upgrades and letting people go uh, without upgrading when they're eligible. And it means that they're selling fewer smartphones. Uh, and I think it's one reason why Apple in particular has introduced the iPhone upgrade program is to try to take a bit more control over that process uh, to make sure that if people do want to upgrade frequently, they've still got a way to do that. Even if they're on one of these carriers, it doesn't necessarily encourage it. Um, but it's something that we're probably going to see around the rest of the world as well as, as other countries kind of move to similar models for, for buying devices. You know, one of the things I was surprised by was how well Sprint did relative to, I think, expectations generally. Um, but I'm curious what you think, because you know way more about this area than I do. Do you think Sprint's sort of, you know, appearance of a turnaround or beginning of a turnaround is sustainable? Because it seems like they're being really generous and cutting back at the same time. It feels like they're sort of working against gravity. Yeah, they are... Um they're definitely seeing better growth than they have done. Um, so that it's positive in that sense. They're, they're, they're adding phone customers again after a couple of years of losing them. Uh, so that's a positive. 
Um, they've cut costs quite a bit. They've laid off quite a few people and they've cut costs in other places. And so their margins are improving and they actually released revised uh, guidance that was better than, than people were expecting for this year. And so there's lots of positive signs there. But at the same time, um, you know, they've got to overhaul their network. The network's still underperforming in a number of ways. And they've got this big network investment program. Um, the accounting for all of this is really complicated because they, they're basically um, getting a, a, a forming a new company to finance the network investment, which makes it really hard to know how it's all going to be accounted for and what the impact's going to be on margins. They're doing the same thing with some of the receivables from these device leasing programs that they have as well. And so the finances are just getting really, really messy, and it's going to get really hard to tell you know, what's really going on there and how it's working. The reality is they're still unprofitable at this point. Um, both they and T-Mobile are still significantly less profitable than AT&T and Verizon. Uh, and both of the smaller carriers are banking on their kind of subscriber growth, eventually getting them to a point where their margins start to improve and, and, uh, and things go well for them. But it's risky. Um, and arguably at this point, um, T-Mobile is on a better trajectory than Sprint, or at least is further along on that trajectory than Sprint is. Mm. All right, well, I think that concludes our, our little news roundup here. So we'll move on to, to the main topic, which, as I said, is going to be Apple's earnings. Um, you know, the headlines, uh, revenue growth was pretty small, 2% on a reported basis year on year. Uh, and revenue growth is always very closely aligned to iPhone growth, which was also very small, just a few hundred thousand more iPhones sold in this quarter than uh, the year ago quarter. None of that, of course, stopped Apple from describing these as record-breaking results, because technically they are. They're better than last year's equivalent results, and those were a huge record at the time in terms of revenues and profits and so on. So, you know, absent any other context, uh, as a quarter, you know, 75-odd billion dollars, um, you know, very significant margins, um, you know, Apple's still the most valuable company by uh, market capitalization and so on and so forth, you know. Without any kind of context, it's an amazing quarter. But the problem is uh, that what we've come to expect from Apple is very strong year-on-year -year growth, and yet what Apple reported was pretty meager growth, and uh, especially in iPhones, which is easily the single most important product. And more importantly, and we'll come on to this a bit later, the guidance for the March quarter was for a significant decline in revenues year-on-year, -year, which is the first time that's happened since 2003. Um, so, you know, really entering uncharted territory for Apple, at least in recent terms, uh, and, and first quarter of negative year-on-year -year iPhone growth as well. So let's start out by talking about the iPhone and, and some of the trends there. Did you have any kind of thoughts to kick us off there? Uh, just a small thing that surprised me is that average selling price for the iPhone went up last quarter. I didn't expect that to happen because I thought substitution the substitutability of the iPhone 6 versus the 6S would actually push average selling price down. Yeah, mm -hmm. I thought there would be plenty of people there who would be happy with the 6 and not necessarily wanting a 6S. Right. Um, and, and because the Plus was already in the product mix for a year, um, you know, I thought that that wouldn't make much of a difference either. So it didn't, it, I mean, it didn't go up a lot, but it went up, which really surprised me because I, th I expected it to go down. And in fact, I expected that to mm -hmm. worry people because they were afraid it would indicate, right. you know, people moving down market on the mm -hmm. iPhone models. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it only went up by a few dollars, but what's worth noting is, and what will come to currency impact in a minute, but if you take out the currency impact, it would have gone up by 
about $50 year on year. So it would have been $740 would have been the ASP if if there hadn't been the currency impact. And so, you know, consider the fact that that's $100 higher than the lower of the, you know, the lowest current model, um, which is priced at around $650. So, um, you know, it's really impressive how that ASP has gone up over the past year with the introduction of the the plus phones obviously there are a hundred dollars more as a starting point and then also the introduction of these higher storage tiers as well those two things together seem to have really driven higher asps which is really impressive for a product line that's so mature and where there are now so many options that are significantly less than that with the year ago phones to your point that look the same and then you know the 5s that's two years old and two hundred dollars less so Really interesting to see that happen. It will be interesting if the rumored 5SE, iPhone 5SE, is, you mm. know, gets out the door and we kind of see where that settles price wise. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the average selling price, you know, at the end of June. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, very much so. Um, you know, the, uh, the other interesting thing about the iPhone is, um, you know, we, we knew it was going to be kind of tough. Last year's fourth quarter was really big. Um, and as I mentioned in the US in particular, um, this fourth quarter was significantly down in terms of total smartphone sales so uh, and it was kind of becoming obvious that that was going to be the case so you know they've achieved kind of parity with last year's fourth quarter even though in the u.s i suspect iphone sales were down quite a bit um u.s revenues for apple overall or america's revenues for apple overall were down as well um suggesting that that was the case um but but china was still really strong and we'll talk about china in more detail later on as well um but you know ultimately a pretty strong quarter this time around, but then the guidance for next quarter, um, not great. Um, and this was, you know, always looked like a really tough year-on-year comparison because of just how big uh, the, the March quarter was last year. You know, China, China uh, with Chinese New Year, with uh, pent-up demand that wasn't met in, in Q4, um, with the... Uh, the fact that, that the phones launched a little later in China that kind of pushed buying back a few months in general. Um, you know, all those things happening last year, driving a really big Q1 and now having to compare against that. But they're, they're forecasting what's looking like maybe a 10% decline year on year in iPhone sales. So, um, you know, this is pretty, pretty new, pretty different stuff for Apple. Yeah, I, um, y- you know, I... I, I well, I guess I'm not sure what I want to say with this because the Chinese New Year seemed like it was a really big deal last year. It was something that they made a big deal out of, you know, for this coming quarter. And there wasn't really much of a blip on it. I realize we're going to talk about China later, but uh, you can tell that that uh, globally there really is like, you know, there is choppy water out there that uh, they weren't making a bigger deal out of that. And it will and, and having more hope in, in what to expect from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we should probably move on to the currency thing. It seems a good segue at this point. Um, but also this sort of macroeconomic stuff that they talked about as well. You know, they, in Tim Cook's opening remarks, there were lots of comments about turbulence and difficult market conditions and things like that. And we haven't really heard anything about any of that from Apple, at least in the prepared remarks over the last few quarters. And we've heard a bit here and there about currency impacts, but but nowhere near as much as this time around. And somebody counted, I think, 25 mentions to, to currency and, and, and similar terms uh, on the call this time around, which was significantly more than previously. Um, and, you know, 
over the last few quarters, I you know I track these other companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and so on. And they've really talked up these currency impacts. You know, Microsoft for several quarters now has provided uh, comparable basis numbers for some of its key metrics, as well as sort of uh, non-adjusted versions, just so that people can see what the real underlying growth rates are. And I found myself wondering, you know, why isn't Apple talking about this more? And the fact is, Apple has talked about it, but just hasn't emphasized it. And I think one reason is when you've got stellar growth, when you're in the sort of you know double-digit growth. Rate, rates, a few more or fewer percentage points doesn't matter that much. But if it's the difference between anemic growth and healthy growth, or even between positive and negative growth, as it has been for, say, Microsoft over the last little while, it becomes very important. And I think that's why you're suddenly seeing Apple now talking about it more, because it's the difference, you know, this quarter between 2% and 8% growth. Um, I think there's a something like a 4% impact projected for next quarter um, as well. And we don't know exactly what currencies are going to do, so it's just a projection. But, um, you know, this currency impact was really very significant for them this time around. We mentioned that the ASP impact just now as well, um, you know, really makes a big difference. And, and it, it, you've got two ways you can respond to it. One is that you raise prices in these countries, which apparently Apple has done in some cases, but then you risk depressing demand. Or you let it go, in which case... Um, you depress margins because many of your costs are incurred in other currencies that may not be moving in the same direction. So, um, you know, it's tough either way that you play it. And it's finally, you know, significant enough given the overall sort of relatively low growth that, that it really had a big impact this time around was a major sort of theme on the earnings. Well, and Apple has a special relationship with its price points that a lot of other tech companies don't have. Um, Apple likes picking very consumer-friendly price points, and that doesn't necessarily mean cheap, but it means uh, right. reliable. Like, you can mm -hmm. always count on a product costing X amount of dollars. And so you can see why it, it, it feels out of character for Apple to be raising prices. But at the same token, you know, Apple's margin, its, its operating margin is a really big deal and has been. You know, they like to hover right around that 40% margin on right. their quarterly, you know, reporting. And that becomes, I, I think they would have scared a lot more investors had they decided to eat into that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. And and so it's a tricky balancing act there for them, I think. But um, there's, you know, pretty there's no winning. That's what it is. I mean, it's just... No, exactly. Absolutely. No You've got to you do sacrifice demand or do sacrifice margins. It's tough. Um, one interesting thing that came up much more so as well this time around um, than previously is, is this emphasis on services. Um, and Apple, you know, generally has a pretty standard set of stuff that it reports. And this quarter they put out almost a set of slides um, along with its results, which it hasn't really done before. One of them was about... Um, the change in exchange rates. The second one was about the impact of those exchange rates on reported earnings. And then, then there was a there was a slide about um, the installed base, uh, and then there was another slide about um, services revenue driven by the installed base. And it was it it wasn't explained in the best way possible on the call. But essentially, what Apple's saying is that their their services revenue is largely driven by the existing installed base of customers. And what they mean by that is you've got people who own an iPhone or an iPod Touch or an iPad or a Mac or whatever who then spend money on uh, TV shows and movies. They spend money maybe on Apple Music. They spend money on um, things like uh, apps and so on. And obviously, that's an increasingly important uh, part of that. Um, there's Apple Pay and their cut of Apple Pay revenues uh, and things you know, along those lines, where these are you know, people who already own a device and there's this consistent sort of revenue stream coming from them that's growing quite nicely over time. They talked about a 20-something percent 
growth rate for that that set of services revenue. Um, and it's interesting to kind of ask, well, why are they emphasizing this now? And, and I've got two theories about this. And one is that essentially one of the reasons why Apple's uh, multiples from a valuation perspective are always lower than other companies is it's inherently unpredictable. And so they're really trying to make the argument that, look, we have a base of a billion uh, active devices in use, uh, all of which generate the services revenue on a pretty predictable, consistent basis that's growing over time, uh, all of which also will ultimately upgrade those devices to another Apple device. And they really talked up kind of loyalty rates and, and intention uh, surveys and things like that that they cited. So they're making the argument that, yes, you know, maybe individual quarters are unpredictable, but ultimately we have this huge install base of devices which generate service revenue on a predictable basis and which will also uh, generate future device purchases uh, from the same people who tend to be very loyal to Apple devices and who will buy the new products that we're putting in market. So I think that's the, the argument that they're making here. And it's an interesting one. It, it's a tough one because, you know, Apple's results are still dominated by hardware and, and the, the, you know, the very fact that the guidance for next quarter is so uh, strongly influenced by, you know, the decline in iPhone sales that they're anticipating, uh, you know, is, is the biggest single counterpoint to this argument. But I think the point they're making is that we're going through a tough time right now, but if you look over the long arc of time, we've got a really solid business. Our biggest single asset is this billion dollar, uh, sorry, billion uh, device user base that we have out there. You know, the half a billion iPhones that we have out there in use, they're going to drive significant future revenue and revenue growth. And so whatever short-term difficulties we go through, uh, we're on a really solid footing going forward. Yeah. So the thing about service, this is, I mean, this is something we talked about before and you've written about before this idea of Apple being, you know, the company you pay monthly, not once every couple of years, right? Because right. you're, and the truth is a lot of people are paying Apple a lot of money on a monthly basis if for no other reason than in the app store. In fact, App Store revenue went up 27% year over year, which is pretty impressive when you consider that, you know, nothing else grew, at least on the hardware side. Right. And so App Store revenue grew, which meant that people are like the App Store and spending in the App Store is just becoming an increasing part of daily life. Um, you know, obviously with Apple Music, that's a new like recurring revenue stream. I think we need to get accustomed to the idea that Apple wants to be billing people on a regular basis, not just when they buy right. big hardware purchases. And, you know, obviously the iPhone upgrade program is another example of that. And I think it's a lot for the reasons that you said that Apple sort of realizes that, you know, there's a lot of money to be made and there's also a way to keep investors more comfortable. The, the difference, though, with Apple when it comes to services versus, say, comparable companies is that these are consumer-facing services. And when you look in tech, a lot of the other services where you're charging the customer are business-oriented. I mean, Amazon has AWS, for example, which is huge. And... But it's but it's not consumer facing. It's not like you know my neighbor is like signing up for this, and 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 I think that's what is um, still uncertain about this. I mean, it's true that Apple positioned itself as being more predictable by having an increasingly reliable revenue source when it comes to services, but there's still a lot we don't know about a company of Apple's size building up its services revenue based on consumers. 
Yeah, and I, I, I do think, I mean, there was this reverence to comparable service companies, and they didn't name names, but you wondered if they were basically saying, hey, you're giving Amazon all this credit for having this rapidly growing AWS services business that's profitable. Well, here's our services business. It has comparable gross margins on a purchase value basis to our business overall, you know, so it's profitable at a pretty decent level as well. You know, give us the same credit that you're giving them. You know, we have something like this growing inside of our company too, and, yeah. and actually it's bigger than Amazon's. Um, you know, at, at Google and Facebook, obviously, arguably services business, but they're ad-driven, so they're a bit different right. in that respect. But, um, but yeah, I think they're basically trying to make an argument for, look, you know, okay, some of our business is unpredictable, but you've got this part over here that's pretty predictable at this point. It's growing fast, it's profitable, uh, and all those metrics are going in the right direction no matter what's happening to our hardware. Yeah. And so you need to pay more attention to that. I think the closest analog we actually have is probably Netflix. I mean, just because the customer base is much more oriented toward what Apple's going for, right? Maybe Hulu. Right. I mean, the idea is like getting consumers to pay for something on a regular basis outside of their cable bill and their cell phone bill. Um, I can understand why investors wouldn't be totally bought in on that. Um, and advertising, like you said, with, with Google, that's, that's a very different animal altogether. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to talk briefly about Apple Watch, and it's getting harder and harder to, to sort of uh, divine Apple Watch numbers from the other products category because you've got the new Apple TV in there as well, and that will have sold pretty well over the holiday period. And, and obviously, we've talked in the past about the challenge of trying to estimate the, the decline in iPod and uh, accessories and so on as well. So from that perspective, it's it's tough to know exactly where that number is, but I, I peg it at around 6 million-ish probably this quarter, which puts the total at somewhere around 12 million so far. So less than, say, I was predicting nine months ago, which was around 20 million by the end of the year. That much was obvious after the first quarter's numbers came out. Um, you know, that still assumes a fairly low ASP that's been the case pretty much throughout. Um, but not bad, you know, for a new product, it's 12 million. Um, sales at about $400 each. Um, so you're talking about almost $5 billion over the course of you know the eight months or whatever it is that it's been in the market now. And, and just in its first year, product that hasn't quite seemed to capture the sort of public imagination completely yet, uh, and that still has some sort of flaws in terms of how apps perform on it and so on. So easy to imagine that you know going into the rest of this year when we, when we see the hardware upgraded at some point, presumably, um, and people become more familiar with it, potentially last year's Apple Watch drops in price at some point too, um, that you could see much bigger sales. So that's starting to become you know a, a source of revenue that could be pretty significant over the next year or two. Well, and this puts the, I mean, I, I think these estimates are all right, and it puts it pretty dang close to the iPad, which, lest we forget, was the fastest growing consumer electronics device ever. And so, you know, I don't think... It, uh, you know, it's funny because I think it, the iPad had that problem o over a longer time. I mean, the iPad took off so fast, faster than the iPhone did. Everybody expected iPhone-type growth out of the iPad, and then we learned that that's not going to happen. And then I think last year, people were even earlier in their hope or expectation that the Apple Watch would be big as the iPhone, and people have to learn that that's not going to happen with the, with the watch either. But it's still going to be a substantial revenue source, just like the iPad has been. Right. Absolutely. No, it's interesting to watch. Um, let's talk about China and India a little bit more. Um, China's been a major focus, obviously, for Apple over the past year. It's been a huge source of their, their growth, and especially their iPhone growth, although they've talked about Mac and App Store revenues as well. Uh, India hasn't been so much of a focus, but it was both mentioned several times in Tim Cook's 
uh, prepared remarks and mentioned uh, and elaborated on quite a bit in response to a couple of questions. And it's quite clear that Apple sees India as a place to invest, a place with a lot of potential. Um, you know, Tim Cook really talked about the, the demographics of the population there being extremely young and therefore having a lot of potential for a consumer brand, which was kind of how he characterized Apple and its opportunity there. So, um, you know, really interesting to see India kind of coming up in terms of importance, especially as Apple was talking about some softness in China starting this month as well. Yeah, India is an interesting problem um, because, I mean, we talked about this last week when we talked about India and how there are some big differences, but India does have a ton of potential. What's interesting about India, I think, demographically speaking, is not just the the, the general, generally younger age profile, because they obviously didn't have, I mean, India as a country doesn't have the really severe family planning laws that they have in China, for example. But, um, but in India, I, th I think another thing is India right now as a country has the world's largest share of the of of the poor. Like there are, I think, something like half a billion, a little over actually, people in India living on less than a dollar eighty a day. Um, but what's fascinating right now is that globally poverty rates are dropping like crazy, and there's this push toward the middle class now. Middle class globally is what we would consider low income in the U.S., but uh, but that is happening, and there's a big push happening that way. India as a country, we're hoping, is also, you know, creating trade policies that are encouraging more trade, which which will obviously help the poor escape poverty there as well. That's I realize is a really big macro kind of look when you're thinking about how the iPhone will do in India. But I think the point it makes is that there is the potential for a lot of growth ahead. And in this time, it won't be so much Apple coming to the customers the way it did in the United States and Europe, but instead customers coming to Apple as economies improve. Right. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, I mean, they talked about, I think, 76% iPhone growth in India and um, slightly lower number of overall kind of revenue growth there. So, you know, they, they're clearly already seeing good results, but it's from very small numbers. And so, you know, this feels like a slow burn and a long term thing, as you mentioned, with the retail stores and everything else, it's going to take a while to make that investment and see that pay off. And I'm still not sure the, the upside is quite um, the same as with China, but you know, even if it was a fraction of China, just given the size of the population there and the kind of rates of growth that they're seeing, it does feel like this could be a sort of I don't know if sleeper hit is the right word, but you know, India could be pretty significant for them over the next few years, even if you know at a smaller scale than China. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I think another point that's important to make when it comes to India and China, well, two points. One, and these both gravitate around the idea that you know. The, the middle class in these countries is lower income than in the U.S. I think when we make that comparison and then we assume that they won't be buying iPhones because they're more expensive, I think it's a flawed um, flawed approach. One, you know, it's true that they're lower income, the middle class people in India and China, but the iPhone is typically their only, their, their, their smartphone is typically their only computing device, and so they're willing to spend more as a share of their income on it. I mean, there are a lot of factory workers that aren't making a lot of money in China, but they're buying smartphones that are relatively more expensive as a share of their income than what Americans are willing to spend on smartphones. And it's because Americans, sort of relatively speaking, they, they also buy computers, right? They buy laptops or desktops or whatever right. they have at home. And that's much more analogous, I think, the way people in China and India are, are purchasing smartphones. And so I, I think people are willing to make the leap to an iPhone income-wise sooner than maybe would happen in the U.S. I think another fear 
and this is another fear is that these low-end Android manufacturers are going to take over those markets. But if you if you pay yeah. attention to the way Apple has has been trumpeting its Android switching rates and how they've been growing, in fact, this last quarter its Android switching rate was was a new record. Um, you know, there's I think there's little reason to believe that people aren't willing to make that switch, especially because there's not a whole lot trapping you into the Android ecosystem anymore. I, I think there was a fear of it being mostly about, you know, I've spent a bunch of money on apps that I can't translate over to an iPhone. But the truth is the most of the apps that most of us use on a regular basis are free. And so the cost of switching is a hardware one. It's not having to spend a bunch a bunch of extra money on software to make that switch where, you know, back in, you know, a couple decades ago if you're switching from from PC to Mac, you had to buy all new software. That's not really a thing anymore when it comes to smartphones. And so I think even if Apple is, it takes a few years for Apple to start, you know, picking up steam in India and however long it takes for, you know, the headache in China to sort of pass and Apple to start growing again in China. These line manufacturers, it, it, if they're introducing people to smartphones, I think, if anything, that's a good thing for Apple because the switching as they increase in income, you know, iPhones seem to be desirable. And and, and I think uh, I think the fear that the, the low-end Android manufacturers are going to take over in these emerging markets and therefore crowd out Apple, I, 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 I think that's a misunderstanding of how Apple products work in consumer minds. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, they could well be sort of... Uh, gateway drugs, as it yeah. were, to, to iPhone somewhere down the line, right? Um, especially if they have a poor experience, but are convinced of the the utility of smartphones right. as a concept. Um, and, and I think this kind of goes to the broader story about the upside for iPhone. And we kind of talked a little bit about the services story here, but you know, Android switching, you know, record levels again this past quarter. Um, you know, that seems to be a continuing theme. You know, the larger phones obviously attracting people that had either stayed away or, or moved away from. The iPhone until now, and so that's an ongoing uh, source of uh, future iPhone customers in at least some of these markets. And it's worth remembering the iPhone has minority share in every market in the world. There's no market where it's consistently had more than 50% share. So there's there's upside there, um, you know, especially markets with larger sort of wealthier populations. Um, but the other one is just the upgrade rate. And you know, Tim Cook gave another statistics that's become kind of a favorite of his, which is. You know, the percentage of people that owned an iPhone in September 2014 who have upgraded to either the 6 or 6 Plus is only 40%. So 60% of people who owned an iPhone before the 6 was announced or became available uh, haven't upgraded to it yet. And so, you know, when you apply that to a base of about half a billion iPhone users, you're talking about 300 million iPhone users who have a phone that's a year and a half or more old who haven't yet bought one of the newer iPhones. And so that's a huge source of upgrades over the next two years, you know. So you add that to Android switching, and suddenly it's a very significant number. Um, and so, again, this goes to the kind of longer-term trajectory, the longer-term story beyond the short-term uh, malaise that they're kind of having and, and the tough year-on-year -year comparison versus uh, the March quarter last year. You know, there's still a heck of a lot of upside there 
and a lot of reason to be kind of positive and optimistic about the longer term, you know, even before you start thinking about, you know, Apple Watch, the Apple TV, you know, other newer products that, that they might have uh, released by then. And that's why I think, I mean, for all those reasons and all the other ones we've talked about, that's why I think that this is more of a pit stop when it comes to iPhone growth than it is a, you know, a, a, it's the beginning of the downturn. I mean, because if you, if you can, there are people already making comparisons to iPod growth. Obviously, there's, you know, a scale difference in, in terms of the number of items sold. But iPods grew pretty rapidly. And then the growth rate just started to kind of top off and curve off. And then there was a slow decline that obviously picked up when the iPhone became popular. I don't think we're at that with the iPhone yet. In fact, I think the truth is we are probably going to see at least three more years of, of growth with the iPhone. I, I think if it wasn't for macroeconomic conditions right now, I think Apple would be projecting more growth for the iPhone this next quarter. Um, and uh, that the, the conditions right now that are leading to the strong dollar you know, China's struggles, those, I mean, it's a recession. It will, it, well, technically it's not, but it's, but it's the, you know, it's the functional equivalent one in terms of what's happening. And that's not going to last forever. And things are going to turn around and, and, you know, the Chinese economy is going to find a way just like the American economy did, you know, five years ago. And so, um, you know, things will turn around. And I, I think iPhone growth is, like I said, on a pit stop. I think it, I think there's still a lot of years ahead of it to, to grow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, the big question just becomes then kind of the timing, you know, and Apple only provides a quarter of guidance at once. And I think it's probably very smart given the kind of volatility that we've seen over the last few months. But, um, you know, does it come back later this year when you get past the really tough year-on-year comparisons? Does it come back? Um, sooner than that, you know, say the June quarter, are they back in growth again then, or does it take a little longer than that? Do we have to wait until next year? You know, I mean, that's one of the biggest questions at this point, but I don't doubt that it's going to come back at some point, both in the iPhone and in overall revenues as well. A um, couple of last things to touch on before we close. Um, iPad and Mac, we haven't really mentioned much yet. Um, iPad, the trend's pretty consistent, has been for some time now. Um, not that you'd expect it to have a huge impact, but, you know, the iPad Pro launched in November, and yet ASP's barely moved, um, and sales still declined, you know, 20-something percent year on year. So not much difference to the trend there. As I say, not that you're necessarily expecting a big difference from the iPad Pro, um, especially with sort of constrained supply, as we talked about last week. But... It'll be worth watching that, I think, again, this coming quarter. But Mac also shrank, and that's the first time that's happened in quite a few quarters. Yeah, and the shrinking of the Mac surprised me, mostly because it's been so long since anything close to that has happened. Uh, for whatever reason, it just always feels like it, it levitates when everything else is dropping. Um, also because, you know, I, I can't remember if they talked about a mix in terms of markets on the Mac, but... Uh, you know, it's obviously higher-end markets that are buying Macs, and I was surprised that that that, that actually went down. But um, it might also have to do with the fact that, abs you know, outside of the MacBook, there wasn't really anything super exciting this year on the Mac line. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to change this year, and we'll talk about that more in a in a future episode, I'm sure. But I, I, And we've talked about it when we did our preview before the holiday break. But um, I, I think this is—I think this is going to be actually an exciting year, product-wise, for the Mac. And so mm -hmm. I don't think it—I don't think decline in Macs is something we need to worry about in the long term. 
Yeah, I mean, the one area where mat growth has been very helpful, and, and it's been less uh, true recently, but there was a period of time where mat growth was largely offsetting iPad shrinkage. So you had a nice sort of offsetting there, kind of neutral impact, uh, and that allowed you know the iPhone and other growing products to drive overall growth. Um, you know, for a while now, the Mac hasn't been offsetting iPad shrinkage, and especially if the Mac starts to go south as well, then that leaves an even bigger hole for the iPhone and, and other new products to, to fill. So it just makes it that much more challenging for Apple to grow overall. Um, the other thing I know you wanted to touch on was new products and uh, the relative absence of comments about new products in the earnings call. Well, it's been a couple of years now that Tim Cook has always hinted at new things in the pipeline. I mean, they've gone out of his way to do so. And obviously, Apple doesn't comment on future products ever. But they do. Um, but in earnings calls for at least the past couple of years now, they've basically talked about an exciting pipeline. Right? They've talked about exciting new products that they and, and even new categories. And there was next to nothing of it this time. Um, in fact, I think yeah. you have the quote, if I remember right. Um, yeah, I think it was something about it. We we have, uh, uh, what was it? We have great some great things in the pipeline, and it was in the context of a question about R&D spending. Right, and so it wasn't even Tim Cook, you know, going out of his way to say something about it, for example, in their prepared comments, which is when this showed up a right. lot. Um, it tells us that Apple is kind of set with its product mix for a little while. I think mm -hmm. if they had anything new on the horizon this year, we would have like heard even the tiniest hint of it in this call, and there really was none. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a disappointing thing. Um, the truth is Apple has a lot of new products that need time to mature, the watch being, I think, the most prominent of those. And it's in the maturing where Apple where the Apple magic really happens. I mean, the truth is they haven't had any product that was just amazing out of the gate that won everybody over. It's usually, you know, a slow burn kind of appeal where all of a sudden you see it around more and more and then and then and then, you know, it takes a more aggressive growth trajectory. And, and so I, I think you're gonna see I, I think this is a year where other than some new introductions on the Mac line, some new refreshes I should say, I don't think we're gonna see a lot I mean obviously we'll get a new iPhone this year. Uh, there will be yep. a second version of the watch, which now, according to rumors, sounds like it's going to be in the fall. Um, but you're not going to have any new product categories, I don't think. Yeah, no, I think I think that may well be right. Um, because he would almost certainly have said something about it if there were, yeah. frankly. But uh, you know, the R and D, the, the reference in the context of R and D suggests that it's something that's you know in development rather than something that's coming coming imminently. So, yeah, certainly you know late this year, but probably next year for any any completely new stuff, which you know makes for an interesting year. It means focus will be on upgrades on on Mac, as you've already talked about. You know, iPad three, iPad Air three, um, new iPhone, obviously in the fall, new Apple Watch in the fall. Uh, maybe a bump to the Apple TV in the fall as well. And it's, it's just one thing that's sad is just the way everything's shifting back to the fall again. Right. You know, nice thing about the original uh, Apple Watch launch was it was one thing that wasn't in the fall. Right. Uh, and I've been saying for some time now, Apple could really do with getting away from launching everything in the fall because it makes for very lopsided results. And, and again, just feeds this worry about, you know, one one big miss kind of killing everything. Um, and uh, but it looks like we're heading back in that direction. Yeah, I, so. I did enjoy Tim Cook's comments about investing in the downturn. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah. man, if you want to be anybody right now, you want to be the company that has a ton of cash on hand because and, right. and with a Absolutely. strong dollar, right? I mean, those mm -hmm. two things are yeah. the perfect 
perfect situation for Apple to be building yeah. itself for some further impressive growth. And they're getting great deals on on R&D purchases right now. They're probably getting mm-hmm. great deals on international manufacturing. I mean, they're yeah. they are they're they're in a position to buy um, capacity and resources for the years to come. And like I said, especially since so much of their money is offshore, right, to avoid the tax burden in the U.S., you know, it makes investing in internationally even more attractive. And and, and I think we're going to see the fruits of that four or five years from now where Apple will be in an even stronger position when it comes to manufacturing and other sort of bread and butter things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's wrap it up there. That was a good good conversation. Um, two weeks in a row on, on largely focused on Apple. So we promised to take a break next week and talk about some other stuff. Um, we've got uh, Samsung's just reported its earnings uh, for Q4 while we've been recording this. Uh, Facebook reported earlier this afternoon. Uh, we've got uh, Amazon and Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, uh, in other words, Google, early next week, and uh, others coming pretty soon. So there should be lots of other earnings for us to talk about next week. So probably focus more on, on some of those next week and uh, keep the earnings themes going so thanks for joining us Uh, we appreciate you being with us we welcome your feedback we'll have some relevant links on the website at podcast.beyonddevices and uh, we look forward to being with you again next week thank you